Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to the FT Working Careers Podcast. I'm Emma Jacobs and joining me today is Joan Williams, founding director of the Centre for Work-Life Law and author of White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America. Hello. Delighted to be here. It's very nice to meet you, Joan, at last. Uh, I've spoken to you on the phone a few times about gender and work. So I wanted to combine the two areas of gender Mm -hmm. and class. Me Too has certainly made gender Mm -hmm. (laughs) an issue again. And also gender pay gap in the UK. I Mm -hmm. don't know if you followed that debate. Not closely, but I know there's a big, uh, there's a large amount of attention that's now being paid to it. So let's start with the book. It sprung from a Harvard Business Review article that you wrote the night of Trump's win. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Why did you write it? Because Trump won. (laughs) I sort of had a feeling that Trump was going to win in the last weeks of the election. And so I began spending lots and lots of time down at Hillary Clinton's headquarters in the center of San Francisco. But, of course, nobody around me thought he was going to win. So people were in shock. (laughs) I left an election night party at 7.30, and I happened to look at my email, and I got an email from my HBR editor, Sarah Green, who had been trying to get me to write about the election, and I said, I'm not going to do it. It's just obvious what's happening. The gender stuff that happened to Hillary Clinton was anybody could say it. But then when Trump won, she said, now you really have to write, because you're one of the very few people who talks about both class and gender. And so I went home and started writing, and... uh, Seven weeks later, I finished the book. I mean, did you have any anxiety? Because you say in the book, in the introduction, that you're not working class yourself, and that, but you're married to somebody that's a class... I call them a class migrant, somebody yeah. who, who was born in a non-elite family and now is membered of the, the sort of professional managerial class. I actually had a lot of anxiety about the book, not because of that, but because I thought that my progressive friends would raise eyebrows, and they did. Why? The sort of politically correct thing to say is that the people who voted for Trump were a bunch of idiots who voted against their self-interest, and they were just driven by racism, end of story. And I was saying something very, very different from that. And do you think that now, almost two years have passed, you'd have written it differently? Would you write it differently now? Actually, no. I think that I was sort of in a flow state. I mean, I wrote it so quickly. And I was saying things that I had been saying in private for many years. And in fact, I had had said in an academic book in 2009, but almost nobody read that. And so it was very scary because it's so different from what the kind of cultural consensus is in my crowd. But at some level, it was a relief to finally come out of the closet and tell people what I actually thought. 
And what did you think? I thought that the white working class has profound and legitimate economic beefs because they've really seen the American dream slipping from their fingers. And they feel that the elite doesn't care because I think they haven't. And they also think that there was a kind of a cultural permission to belittle and make fun of blue-collar Americans. And I think they're right about that. I think there has been. Do you think that's changed in the last 18 months, two years? I think it's complicated. There's, uh, as I like to say, I and others have actually started a conversation about class in America. (laughs) (laughs) Quite an unusual situation. I, I think there's a lot of resistance, but I think there's also a really robust conversation about class in the United States, which is very, the first time in over 40 years that people have actually been thinking about the difference between the people who are being called the white working class, who are actually actually the middle class, um, and the elite. Also, I, I spent a lot of time talking to people in Congress, Democrats in Congress, and I think that electeds, as we call them there, they understand what I'm saying. They see it. They have to connect with people. The people who have found what I'm seeing really troubling and hard to swallow or sort of dyed-in-the-wool progressives, I am one, who, by the way, <laughs> these are my people, um, who are deeply invested in equality for women, equality for trans people, for LGBTQ deeply anti-racist, but have always traditionally considered white working class as just, you know, racist, sexist, homophobic, end of report, that's all. And some of them, I mean, some, I've received hundreds of letters, as you can imagine. I've received a lot of them from class migrants, people who were born in blue-collar families and are now professional. And those have been the most gratifying because they have said, you finally put into words something I've been striving to say. I finally feel that someone sees me for the first time. This is going to make it easier for me to go back and talk to my family. But some of them are from people who are very insulting. But also some of <laughs> some uh, some are from progressives like myself who one of them said I felt like almost as if I'd been slapped in the face, but now I see what you're saying. This made me look at my life in a very different way. I mean, I think what's interesting about the book, I mean, one of the reasons (laughs) that the book's interesting is that the kind of culture wars and identity politics are often, you know, it's presented as an either-or situation. And and I think in the book that you make a good argument for it being a false dichotomy that you can have identity politics. Mm -hmm. White working class is an identity politic. We just tend to see these things as the norm or the other. But, I mean, it's a kind of nuanced inclusiveness, really. Well, I mean, if you have a social discourse that's attuned to social inequality based on race, based on gender, based on sexuality, but is completely blind to social inequality based on class, that's kind of a recipe to create a backlash against identity politics for the rest of those groups. And that's exactly what's happened. And there have been some, notably Mark Lilla in the United States, argued that the solution is that identity politics was a was a dead end and we need to abandon ident- identity politics. To me, that's very unconvincing because 
despite 40 years of talking about race and, and gender, I mean, not much has changed at the top with respect to race and gender. So I think the, the key is not to abandon identity politics, but to include social class as a very important vector of social inequality, which of course it is. How's your book played overseas? I've been really astonished. When I wrote the book, I thought of it as a particularly American intervention in a particularly American situation. But the book has been translated into Japanese and French, and I have now given talks on the book. I mean, I'm just coming from Denmark and Sweden. I've given talks in Brussels, the Netherlands, all over, received letters from all over the world. This is a very broad-based phenomenon, this economic populism, and it is characteristic of most advanced industrial democracies. One of the last that really had been relatively unaffected by it was Canada, and there was just a Trump-like candidate who won major office in Canada last week. So it's much more broadly applicable than I would have guessed when I first wrote it. And they're, they're reading it to understand their own country, not just America. Both. They're reading it to understand Trump, but, I mean, I just gave a talk in the Dutch Parliament building a couple of days ago, and a Dutch MP just asked if he could meet with me today, and th that's not to learn more about Mr. Trump. <laughs> <laughs> um, the whole dynamic of, first of all, one of the things that I've realized in coming to Europe is that the what I call the class-culture gap between the professional managerial elite, roughly the top 20%, and what's called the white working class, which is really the middle 53%, the middle class. In many ways, the key way that was expressed politically for, for a number of decades was through culture wars. And there's one study by Dutch scholars that found that the cultural conflicts account for much of the move to the right in Dutch politics. In more recently, it's been, culture wars are still around, but immigration has been the key issue. And, of course, the divisiveness over immigration is very broadly shared throughout Europe. In the context of the workplace, I mean, to take your husband as an example, mm -hmm. the idea of a class migrant having problems when they kind of come to work. Mm -hmm. or, uh, I mean, I've read pieces about people spending a lot of time passing as middle mm -hmm. class. And w is it something that employers think about, do you think? No, it isn't. And I think there would be a lot less backlash against diversity programs if they included class in them. Because I think one of the things that happens is someone who's been working with corporations to form diversity mm -hmm. programs for over 20 years is that often in diversity programs, people talk about white men as being privileged. Since I give these workshops all the time, I can notice how when I talk about, there's a specific study, which is pretty amazing, which is a matched resume study. They're both white men, but one listed things like lacrosse and polo, and the other listed pickup soccer and counseling first-generation college students. And Mr. Lacrosse and Polo got 16 times the number of callbacks <laughs> as Mr. Pickup Soccer. And I talk about that and talk about, uh, as one of the basic patterns of bias, I call it prove it again. And it affects women very profoundly. It affects people of color. But it also is triggered by social class. 
And when I talk about that, I can literally see from the body language certain white men reorient their bodies and start listening to me. Oh, interesting. And so I think that some of the backlash against corporate diversity programs stems from class migrant men who think, you know, they're talking about me as part of the privileged elite, and I'm just not. The class migrants is a good way of including men in the diversity conversation, isn't it? It's a very good way. And I have literally seen some men through body language who were completely resistant and resentful of a workshop until I pointed out that men from non-professional backgrounds encounter some of the same patterns of bias that women and a people of color do. And I've seen men literally reorient their bodies and, and suddenly start to listen. But I do think that it's important to include men. The predominant way this has been done is it's kind of men as allies programming, and it's very well intentioned. But I think it's going to be far more effective to show men that there's something in it for them, too, rather than just kind of a be kind to animals yes. sort of <laughs> approach. Um, for example, that one of the major patterns of gender bias I call the tightrope, and that's that women have to really be careful, um, and they have to walk a very narrow tightrope between being seen as too masculine to be likable, the Clinton problem, or too feminine to be competent. And um, that's because that stems from prescriptive stereotypes that women are supposed to be modest, self-effacing, and nice. So if they're like Hillary Clinton, oh my God, she's defectively self-effacing and defectively nice. And those prescriptive stereotypes, men also pay a price for them. For example, men who are modest actually are seen as too feminine and so less, less confident. So women who are boast have a ding because they're defectively not modest, self-effacing, and nice. But men who are modest get a ding because they're seen as defectively direct, assertive, and competitive. And what that means is that men who are just simply modest or who are introspective or shy, unless you interrupt the kinds of bias that are that's derailing the women, you will also not be getting the full potential from those men either. Those same stereotypes disadvantage men. I think that's a much more effective way to engage men and get their buy-in in these this kind of diversity program. I think that's really interesting. I think also the the problem is that the, that it's often sold as something to fix at the top. You can have diverse thought and which is great at a board level but what about at the procurement level who cares whether you've got more women at your you know it needs to be understood as an advantage yeah I mean this has been treated as an attitudinal problem as if you like if we all strive to be better people no <laughs> the reason that we have had basically a stall out of progress on diversity for 40 years is that the tightrope and this prove it again all of these patterns they're constantly being transmitted through basic business systems, through hiring, through performance evaluations, through assignments. And until you introduce these bias interrupters and stop that constant transmission of bias, nothing's going to change, which is what we've seen. Is there a kind of double standard when it comes to the way that white working class men are perceived or that they have to mold themselves in different ways? 
Well, it, as a, if you're a white working class man or a class migrant in a professional context, you can cover a lot more easily sometimes than if you're a woman. You can't cover that. Um, it's funny. One of the things that outs you is teeth. Teeth is a very strong class marker, at least in the U.S., but if that doesn't out you, you can spend a lot of time trying to make believe like you're from a professional managerial family, which will probably be the default assumption. But of course, doing that is very taxing and very exhausting and often makes you feel very inauthentic. So there's a real price to be paid for not coming from the expected class in professional environments, just as there's a price to be paid for not coming from the expected race or gender. Do you think companies should be counting class as well as ethnicity? And... I think it depends on the job. I mean, mm. in many blue-collar jobs in the United States, white men still hold over 90% of them. In that context, probably doesn't make sense. <laughs> but in high-level professional jobs, I do think that the central message is that the kinds of bias interrupters that can level the playing field for women and people of color, they're very parallel. And those same bias interrupters, which are kind of tweaks to the basic business systems like hiring and performance evaluations, those tweaks will also help class migrants. I mean, one of the things that you talk about in the book is the glass ceiling being a form of class cluelessness. Mm. And it's certainly something that I come against with readers at the FT mm. <laughs> complaining about the preoccupation of a group of women mm -hmm. making it to the top. How do you think that that message, the kind of effort to break the glass ceiling, should it be cracked or should it be more inclusive? I think it's important not to set up kind of zero-sum game where if you care about class, you don't care about gender, you don't care about race. Um, my critique of the glass ceiling metaphor was as used by Hillary Clinton in the presidential election because the glass ceiling metaphor basically says that women should have the same access to high-level professional jobs that men traditionally have had. And, you know, working-class people, they just don't actually care about that. And why should they? Why should they? But the fact is, if you look at the gender and racial composition of high-level professional jobs, there's basically been a stall, depending on how you count, for women since the mid-1990s. I think that's a pretty important issue. So I th think it's important to talk about the glass ceiling and, for example, the maternal wall, the bias based on motherhood, that bar women from equal access to high-level professional positions. I just think it's kind of clueless to use that as one of your key political agenda items in a country highly divided by class, which is what Clinton did. One of the other aspects that you talk about is men into pink-collar jobs, which is I think it's a fascinating area and a kind of there's a kind of crude assumption that if manufacturing jobs are going men should be going mm -hmm. into nursing or healthcare. What do you think the problems are with that analysis? Well, oh so many. Um <laughs> first of all, nursing is somewhat of an exception because it's relatively well paid, but most pink collar jobs are they're very flat career tracks and they're very low paid. Those jobs were actually never designed to support a family. They were designed to support a family if the pink-collar worker was married to a blue-collar worker. And that's another way of just saying these families should accept incomes at a, at a paltry level, and you know what, they won't. 
they want a solid middle-class standard of living, and they're clearly willing to do quite a bit um, if they're not offered it. So the the other reason that just saying, well, the solution for these blue-collar guys is to pay, take pink-collar jobs, I mean, you know, when professional managerial men are perfectly happy to take traditionally women's jobs. I mean, when they become, when investment bankers become librarians, I will totally say that that's where <laughs> blue collar workers need to, to go as well. But we don't say that. We never hear that. We never hear that because obviously they don't want to be librarians for two reasons. Number one, they'd be paid a fraction of what they're paying now. And number two, Part of the way we enact our gender identity is at work. And so in many contexts, work is either a masculinity contest where you enact your masculine identity, or if it's a pink-collar environment, that doing that kind of work is perceived as feminizing. And being perceived as feminine is not a high-status move for a man, nor do many men want to go there. More recently, you've spent time thinking about the Me Too movement or working on it. What, what have you been doing? I've been doing a lot of workshops for large companies on sexual harassment. Um, and I think it's really an important moment. I mean, it's amazing to me that I, I, I keep... As a woman of a certain age, I keep finding myself saying, you mean this is actually not okay anymore? <laughs> I can't believe it. Um, but there's been what we call a norms cascade, where usually social norms change very gradually. But this is one instance in which they, they changed very abruptly. And I think that leaves a lot of people feeling extremely anxious and uneasy and one of the things that we hear in the United States is people, uh, men going, fine, I'll just never mentor women again, or I'll never, I'll never have another closed-door meeting with women. And I think it's important to point out, first of all, that it's totally fine never to have a closed-door meeting with women if you never have a closed-door meeting with men. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just gender discrimination. I also think it's important just to respond to some of the fears not that really jerky guys have, but that really decent guys have of like, gee, you know, I work 80 to 100 hours a week. I'm never going to meet a partner if I don't meet her at work. How on earth can I ask someone out in this kind of atmosphere? And there's a very concrete answer to that. And I think it's important that people know it. What's the answer? I mean, my answer is always just don't harass people. It's not, it's not that's that not, difficult. That's not, I think that doesn't communicate concretely enough. What I say to people is, first of all, your company might have a rule against it. <laughs> Find that out. It might have a rule against it if you're in a supervisory relationship. Find that out. So go check the HR manual or else you might get into serious trouble. Assuming that it's, there's no rule against it, Imagine, keep in mind that the bottom line for men in Me Too is to understand that when, when women show up for work, they expect to be able to work. And they're entitled to have work colleagues who are only work colleagues, if that's their preference. They are entitled to do that. Why? They are at work. And this is a work colleague now, and you're asking to change your relationship with her. And so imagine if you'd had a friend whom you'd known forever and you would love to change your relationship. But if she doesn't want to and she wants to continue on a purely friend level, you also want to preserve this relationship. So that's the mind frame. And say something like, you know, I enjoy you as a colleague. I'd also like to 
have something more. And I want to know if you're at all interested in that direction. And if you're not, you'll never hear about it from me again. And if you do it that way and um, ask only once, you will not be engaging in sexual harassment and you should not get into trouble. And the message for women is if that happens and you really want to, but you want to play hard to get and you say no, you're going to have to live with that for you. Because if you say no, he has to back off and not approach you again. So if you change your mind, it's now up to you. You're a big girl. You go and ask him. Do you think that there's been any unexpected outcomes of Me Too at work? The um, One of the things that I've been struck by is the sort of intergenerational aspect between senior women and, and younger ones. But also the sort of people with feelings of that they've kind of held on to for a long time, not knowing what to do with them. That, that I had a discussion with somebody that said, you know, I feel like there should be a kind of truth and reconciliation moment, mm. but, you know, I don't want to get rid of this person, the time's changed, but I still want my feelings that I've held on to acknowledged. Mm. Have you seen this in your workshop? I mean, certainly what's surprised me in the United States is that the the fourth major pattern of gender bias, I call it the tug of war, which is when gender bias against women fuels conflicts among women, that has not arisen around sexual harassment very much in the U.S. It has in France, where the letter signed by Catherine Deneuve and mm. others that said, you know, if a, something to the effect of if a guy, you know, equal pay is fine, but if a guy rubs up against you in the subway, he's just expressing sexual yearning. The tug of war arises because when work is a boys' club, sometimes you have to do what it takes to fit into the boys' club. And if you've done that for many decades, sometimes your instinct is to hold other women to that standard as well. And the surprising thing in the U.S. is that that has not happened openly around sexual harassment, that women, I'm really proud of them, have (laughs) actually hung together on this issue. There is some grumbling by older women, but it tends to be kept private. And I think That's one of the things that makes me hopeful that social norms really are going to change this time because, of course, I'm old enough to have seen in 1991 (laughs) with the Hill-Thomas Supreme Court hearings where we actually thought sexual harassment was going to be addressed then and it wasn't at all. Yeah, it's very interesting. I remember talking to someone the day after the Weinstein story came out. A professor had studied harassment and she sort of said I think that we're going to have another backlash and it's going to be the same as 91 and it does seem to be playing out it differently. It mm-hmm. I mean there's backlash for there's sure. There's backlash but the social norms have really changed. I mean I've studied the polling and if I remember correctly I can't remember the exact wording of the question but when asked is sexual harassment totally not okay Um, there's been a sharp rise in the U.S. from about one-third who agree to about three-fourths. That's That's a big, sudden change. And do you think that people have managed to articulate their past grievances, or do you think they've held on to them? You mean women? Women in the workplace. This might be a completely (laughs) dumb question. (laughs) But it was whether women who have had past grievances and feel resentful when they see them being articulated, Mm -hmm. um, you know, oh, that happened to me, but I didn't identify it as Mm -hmm. harassment. 
Are you seeing any companies do anything interesting with those kind of past feelings, if that makes sense? I think when you have this kind of, you know, sudden norms cascade, you're going to have a lot of men who feel like deer in the headlights, and indeed many do. And then again, you're going to have conflicts among women of women. I mean, when I when I was in my 20s, uh, it was a long time ago in the in the 70s, but I was literally told that any woman worth her salt could deal with, with sexual harassment, and if she couldn't, she didn't belong in the workplace. That was That was the reality. So if a woman still has that kind of attitude today, obviously she's going to be very judgmental of much younger women who feel that sexual harassment is outrageous and has no place in the workplace. I do think that older women, again, um, some of them have those feelings in private for sure, but are hanging with the younger women in public, for which I am truly grateful. Have you been watching the gender pay gap reporting in the UK? Not closely, but I know there's a huge furor starting with the BBC, (laughs) going elsewhere, shall we say. I mean, I think that through talking to people at various companies, I was interested that some of the kind of untapped resentment seems to come from mid-ranking women, women that have, you know, when companies talk about ways of addressing some of the gender Mm -hmm. pay gap issues, it's on the future pipeline and building Mm -hmm. that up. And Mm -hmm. so there's a whole raft of women that feel like, good for you, Mm-hmm. But they've been overlooked and they're not going to benefit from this kind of social revolution in a way. Mm-hmm. Do you think... Also, it's those mid-rank women mm. who tend to really encounter that form of gender bias because that's the prove-it-again bias where you have to prove yourself more so than men. And superstars generally don't have problems with prove-it-again bias because they're, I mean, they're so far above the norm that they're going to make it even having to have proven themselves twice. Um <laughs> But it's those mid-ranked women that are really going to be affected by the fact that they have to be twice as good to get half as far. So again, when you have this kind of sharp social change, there are going to be a lot of feelings that people have about being left behind, having the rules changed. And, you know, all of that's true. But the alternative is never having any change at all, which is no doubt far worse. Do you think you'll see it in the U.S.? The gender pay gap stuff. I frankly wonder whether, I mean, publishing the gender pay gap is one thing. Eliminating the gender pay gap is another. And uh, I think the major tools of, like, the diversity industrial complex have not been effective at eliminating gender bias or the gender pay gap. So I've developed a new set of tools that takes an extremely different approach called Bias Interrupters. They're at www.biasinterrupters.org. And we're really not going to see the gender pay gap closed until, for example, women stop being penalized in performance evaluations. There was one study of performance evaluations in tech had found that 66% of the women were faulted for personality problems, but only 1% of the men. (laughs) (laughs) So unless you are tweaking your performance evaluation system, starting from that kind of evidence and holding yourself to metrics, people can publish all they want. The gender pay gap will not close. And that's the point of the bias interrupters tools. Well, thank you very much, Jane. It's been great to meet you. Thank you. And my thanks to Yanina Convoy, our producer.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.